Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're coming at you with some listener mail today. A really good crop this month, I believe. Yeah, I think one of the key reasons is, you know, on one hand, people send in nice listener mail, but also... Uh, our robot, our mail bot, Carney, has had uh, more uh, free time to, uh, to, to properly collect it and uh, assemble it and present it to us. That's right. That's because Carney quit social media. That's right. He got he, off Facebook, got off Twitter, stopped scrolling. Mm-hmm. He listened to our episode on Bummer, and uh, now he's, he's Bummer free. Uh, though, on the other hand, he has, in fact, turned into a manual social media robot of his own. Uh, and no behavior modification. Instead, he just rolls around the world delivering messages directly between people by shouting them, them at you. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes a little longer. But, uh, but he never stops. That's the cool thing. You know, mm-hmm. he's, like the, he's like the monster and it follows. He just makes a, a straight line from, uh, from sender to recipient and he'll get there. Most of the time, he just zips up and says, like. <laughs> yes, or heart, or, uh, or just presents the, the proper emoji uh, in place of, uh, you know, actual emotional investment. He also deals in, uh, uh, in memes uh, quite a lot as well. Oh. Yeah. Well, can't fix everything at once. <laughs> okay, well, I think we should jump right into it with a first. Th- this first one is not a single bit of listener mail, but it is a theme we got. Uh, so let's start by talking about our episode on The Tingler. Uh, this was about fear and about the 1959 William Castle movie, The Tingler. Super fun episode. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I, and hopefully we inspired uh, more than a few people to actually go check this this film out, uh-huh. uh, for, you know, for the first time or to revisit it and admire its weirdness. Absolute camp classic. It is wonderful. But I wanted to start up front. We usually, if we get any corrections, we try to put these up front most often. And so I'm doing that right now. In our episode on the tingler, in talking about the influence of our gut flora on our brains, specifically we were talking about the ways uh, and the the evidence that changes in gut flora could have an effect on uh, animal fear response, including perhaps human fear response. I mentioned an estimate that the number of microbial cells in our body is around 10 times the number of human cells in our body. Now, this used to be a commonly cited figure, but several listeners got in touch to point out that the more recent and probably more accurate estimates have revised that number down. So it's probably closer to a 2 to 1 or a 1 to 1 ratio. But even on the lowest end, that fact remains about as astonishing mm-hmm. to me. On the conservative estimate by sheer cell count – only half the cells in your body are human cells. Yeah, and, and that, is, that is amazing to consider. The tingler, of course, uh, involved, for anyone who didn't listen to that episode and needs a reminder, uh, it, it involved a plot line about this weird centipede-like creature uh, that resides uh, along all of our spines. Right. And uh, when, we, uh, uh, when we fear, when, we, when we're really uh, you know, gripped by intense fear, mm-hmm. it constricts um, around our spinal column. And if we don't scream to, to, uh, you know, to, to drive it back into seclusion, it will like snap our spine in half. Right. When the fear starts flowing, you get those spines cracking. Right. Uh, but of course, the, the, one of the whole weird aspects of the whole plot was there's a thing living inside you that's not you. Right. And of course, the more we we, we know about the human body and uh, 
the microbiome, we know that that is a reality. Like yeah. you said, uh, uh, half of our cells are not our own. They half of We are half tingler at all times. <laughs> Except the only way I might argue with that is that maybe those cells are best thought of as you, even mm-hmm. though they don't share, say, your DNA and they are bacterial cells, not mammal cells. In what sense are they not you if they share body space with you, if they have control over your feelings and your thoughts and your behaviors? I don't know. It's kind of hard to argue that those bacterial cells aren't you in some way. This is another reason we we really need to do the fly uh, yeah. on the show. Uh, you know, probably the Cronenberg version, this version, as opposed to the Vincent Price, uh, is, is that's the one that I'm I'm most uh, attracted to. But you get into a lot of this in that film as well, like the idea of your uh, genetic identity being disrupted by the. Um, by an interloper, uh, mm-hmm. an inhuman interloper that flies into the, the telepod with you. Uh, but, of course, we already have so many interlopers that are just part of the package that are, I guess, going to have to be <laughs> tracked and reassembled uh, by the computers that are maintaining the telepods to begin with. It's okay. We're all Brundlefly. <laughs> Okay, do we want to look at our next email about the tingler? I think this one starts off being in response to a question we asked in that episode, uh, which was, could having a sort of imaginary personification of your fear response be helpful in overcoming your irrational fear response? Like in thinking of it as some kind of animal that you have to contend with that's separate from you, uh, does that give you some kind of power over it? And our listener Anna got in touch Uh, with several thoughts, but first off, I think that's what she's talking about. All right, she writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I have been listening to your podcast for a while now and really enjoy it. Other podcasts I listen to, I find interesting when I am listening to them, but then I move on. But with yours, I find myself having lots of thoughts about the topic you were discussing. Oh, no. (laughs) In one of your recent podcasts, you were discussing anxiety. And if it could be personified, it would be easier to deal with. I suffer from some anxiety myself, and one analogy I found useful was the image of a smoke alarm. The smoke alarm is there to go off if there is a fire, but often goes off if you burn or toast or forget to put the fan on above the stove. The smoke alarm responds the same whether it is a major disaster or a minor incident. I find this a useful way of describing my anxiety to others. I often forget to put the fan on above the oven and the smoke alarm comes off Uh, I keep a broom nearby so I can poke the button on the smoke alarm with the broomstick. Perhaps I should imagine poking my anxiety with a broomstick instead. I think that's a really good analogy. (laughs) Uh, You also discussed why you enjoy horror films, uh, and this reminded me of something I read in a Neil Gaiman book. It was in the introduction to the Coraline and Other Stories book. He was saying it was a shame that modern children's literature wants to avoid scaring children, but some of the best children's stories are scary. He quoted Ogden Nash, Quote, uh, where there is a monster, there is a miracle. He says, a world in which there are monsters and ghosts and things that want to steal your heart is a world in which there are angels and dreams and above all, a world in which there is hope. And from there, she goes on to make a reading recommendation that we may come back to in a future episode. uh, But she closes out by saying, keep up the great work, Anna. Yeah. Uh, so this is a really interesting thought. Now, Robert, I think you've sort of covered that idea on the show before, right? This, I think this was before I came on the show, but you did something a long time ago about children, children's like scary kid stories. Yeah, yeah. There is an older episode on that about the, uh, cause there was a, there was a study about like terrifying elements in children's, uh, literature. It would mm-hmm. be interesting perhaps to, to look at it again and see if there's been any new scholarship on it. 
Uh, and of course, there are all there's always the you know observations of like the horrific aspects of not only like Grimm's fairy tales, like that's a standard, but uh, you know you expect it from the the Brothers Grimm. Mm-hmm. But then you look at, at Disney films as well, yeah, <laughs> and the uh, you know at, at times of perplexingly traumatic moments that occur in those films. Yeah, it's. Um, it's 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 interesting. Of course, the whole argument about like you know you got to have the the monsters so you can have the angels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe that's part of it. I mean, that's also kind of a a theological uh, argument for the existence of horrible things in the world uh, <laughs> that sometimes people take issue with. So I don't know. Well, I don't uh, I I don't know if you should take like the angels thing literally there because like I sometimes have the thought. Obviously, we want a better world. You know, you mm-hmm. want pain to be taken away and, like, more good things to happen to more people all the time. Uh, but the, there is a part of you that says, like, if I never faced any kind of pain or any kind of struggle or anything, something about that seems very scary in itself. There's a kind of, like, brave new world-ish kind of quality to that. Yeah. Uh, th- that there's some part of us I do think that yearns for struggle – and that would maybe feel like life was meaningless if everything was always good and happy. I've been thinking about about some of this recently. I mean, particularly with 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 say horror and mm. uh, and dystopia. Uh, you know, at, at times we have like just extremely grim models of this. Mm. And I feel I feel like you know, obviously, fiction is always going to speak uh, to the time in which it is uh, created. It's going to speak uh, to the experience of the people that create it. And and I don't mean to like uh, you know make a uh, you know, to, to overinflate that and, and try and, uh, you know, make an outrageous overstatement of the obvious here. But, but you know, it, I, th- I feel like at times maybe the horror is dwelt on in times and by people, you know, who do not, who, who have the privilege of not having to confront uh, such horrors head on. Yeah. Uh, but then what happens is later on in a more horrific time or a time when uh, the horror is more uh, obvious to us, we still have those same stories to look back on and mm-hmm. they don't always match up you know they, they don't always d- deliver what we need to either make sense of the world uh, that is uh, occurring around us or to escape from it mm-hmm. um and then the other thing i was thinking of too is the uh, the idea of you know personifying anxiety mm-hmm. uh you know and, and about how it, it often seems like i often feel like you know there's there is the shape of of the anxiety that must be filled with something, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if I'm not worrying about this thing, like something else is going to fill that shape, and I, I think that's just part of of like how we evolved, you know, like we evolved to be a, a, a being that would always encounter that shape. That shape would be there, perhaps very physically in the form of a predator, or just you know in the form of the. Um, you know the hurdle of surviving in a in a hostile world, mm-hmm. and as we remove ourselves from that world of just pure survival, you know we have we still have that shape in our lives, and it will be filled with something. It cannot remain a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, it may fill up with paper tigers uh, if that's all it has in your life, or, or it just may fill up with dreads about things that may occur or certainly will occur in your future. Um, and then, yeah, I guess we have to poke it with a broomstick. That's the only thing to do. <laughs> or, well, wait, I'm, I'm not sure. Were you suggesting that it's possible that the, um, that that shape could be filled in with sort of fictional exercises as well? Like that, this is a value of scary or or challenging scenarios in I, fiction. I think so, yeah, I I think so. I mean, there, I I try to think of 
of times where I've I've done that either like consciously or sub- subconsciously, and I, and I think I have. Uh, but they were often sort of simpler times in my life too, where not to say the world was simpler, but maybe I was just more oblivious, you know, to the, you know, the, the dangers of say, you know, geopolitical situations or, you know, or less, um, you know, f- familiar with the, uh, you know, the state of my own privilege, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, you just sort of lump a horror film in there and like, imagine this. And, uh, and then, I don't know, I feel like later on I reach a point where it's like, oh, I don't have to imagine that, that like, this is, this is all real. And that's what gets sucked into the, uh, into the vacuum of the shape, if that's making sense. All right. We also have another Tingler uh, related uh, bit of uh, listener mail here. And this one comes to us from Jonathan. Jonathan writes, thanks for choosing a film that dates back to my generation. <laughs> I was eight when I saw the Tingler in the theater. I wasn't sitting in a vibrating seat, but at the moment when the creature walks across the projection screen, the theater momentarily shut off its emergency floor lights. What frightened me, though, were the sudden screams from the audience multiplied by the screams on the soundtrack. Those live screams seemed chilling at the time. I'm not proud to say that I thought this was the best horror film I had ever seen, and going to the movies to watch Saturday matinee horror films was a regular part of my life. In the years since, I've experienced way too much cortisol to enjoy horror anymore. Amazing how you can create such a fascinating episode on such an unlikely topic. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, and that's great that we got to hear from someone who was actually there for uh-huh. not only The Tingler, but other horror matinee films. I, I, need to, I need to write Jonathan back and ask him, you know, what, what are some more memorable entries from the horror mat- matinee that he remembers seeing? Turning off the exit lights. I envy the people <laughs> who got to have the experiences before, like, insurance demands on theaters would prevent those kinds of stunts. Right. Opposed from, like, whatever kind of, like, gimmicky uh, insurance uh, th- that uh, William Castle might have been uh, proclaiming to oh, promote right, the film. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we next are going to turn to a message uh, from our listener Cody about our episode on the asteroid 2019 OK, which passed very close to the Earth not too long ago. Cody writes, Hey guys, just listen to your episode about 2019 OK. I actually work in the field of planetary defense. Amazing. Uh, So sometimes we ask for messages like this and sometimes we get them. Cody continues, and there is unfortunately quite a lot of misinformation on this subject, mostly spread by academicians and journalists who don't actually work in this field or sit on any policy discussions. So let me get this out of the way. The nuclear option is by leagues the better tool available to us. So let me explain why with the caveat that these are my personal opinions on the subject as someone who works in this field, not the position of any particular organization. All right. So we're going to get a nuclear nuclear weapon and space advocate. Right. And really the first like pro-nuclear weapon argument I think we've uh, really uh, properly entertained on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is good, you know, yeah. finally finding a good use for nuclear weapons that isn't killing people. Okay, Uh, Cody continues, every asteroid that is ever going to hit the Earth is going to go through a very long period of having a vanishingly small probability of doing so. This is because the probability of an impact is calculated by taking the ratio of the cross-section of its probable location when it passes Earth. With errors factored in, this looks like a big ellipse with the Earth inside to the cross-section of the Earth itself. For asteroids detected far in advance, this ratio is close to zero, i.e. a very large number divided by a relatively small number. 
This is still true for asteroids that will strike the Earth. This is just how errors factor into the calculation of probability. The really dangerous aspect of this is that at the timescales that would be required for something like a gravity tractor to work, the probability you would calculate for an impact is, you guessed it, basically zero. So who in their right mind is going to spend the billions of dollars required on such a mission when there's almost an absolute certainty uh, from an accountant's perspective that it's a waste of money? This is also true of any painting or mirror or solar sail venture that's been proposed. We just don't have infinite money to play those kinds of games on asteroids that we're not certain are even going to strike the Earth. Now, by the time we are much more certain of an impact, like let's say we have calculated a 5% chance, the only remaining tools that stand a chance of working are a kinetic impactor or a nuclear standoff explosion. Nobody actually contemplates blowing it up in this field. At that point, the cost of the mission still controls the equation here. A kinetic pusher will be moving at the same speed as a nuclear device when it reaches the asteroid, and pound for pound, a nuclear device just delivers more energy for the cost of delivering it to the asteroid. Let's not forget, the U.S. does not currently possess any vehicle capable of delivering a kinetic impactor of sufficient mass to be relevant to anywhere in the solar system. We'd need a Saturn V just to even try. The Expanse version of space travel isn't here yet. As for elegance, nuclear wins there, too, since any kind of explosion next to an asteroid causes the near part of the asteroid to heat up and blow off for quite a while. You're not just pushing it, you're turning the asteroid into a rocket. As for turning the asteroid into a radioactive asteroid, I'm sorry to say everything in space is already radioactive, and an asteroid we'd be trying to deflect would find our attempts to make it radioactive cute by comparison to what the sun already does. Love the episode, and yes, there are actually people working very hard on this problem, Cody. Well, this is great. I mean, we, uh, you know, we, we, we knew there were people working on this problem, and uh -huh. we celebrate them. And, and it's great to actually hear from uh, someone like this. So, uh, you know, keep up the great work, Cody, uh, because uh, we need it. This is, this is, as I've said multiple times, like this is one of the, the, those, those few uh, uh, endeavors that can actually, uh, you know, has the potential to save the Earth. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and we should absolutely celebrate it, acknowledge it, and and above all things, fund it. Th this is a really great example of how firsthand knowledge of working with a problem in a field can inform your decisions better than just thinking about the problem and you know from an abstract point of view for not very long. Can because right. like a lot of these astrophysicists that you talk about would say, okay, you know, like the gravity tractor sounds like a great idea, and it is a great idea, except for the considerations that Cody mentions here, mm -hmm. right? The idea of calculating the probability of an impact far enough in advance for it to work. It seems like we would have to have the ability to predict with much greater accuracy than we can right now whether something would hit us way, way in advance. And I don't know what it would take for that kind of accuracy to come online. Maybe we just can't ever expect that it would. I guess unless we want to go, you know, put gravity tractors on all kinds of things, which as he points <laughs> out, nobody's going to shell out the money to do. Right, yeah, yeah. So it, it does make, a, I think, a strong argument for this being the far more practical choice as well. All right, well, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will roll into some bummer email. All right, we're back. So the next batch of emails is going to concern our episodes on social media, uh, the the bummer business model, as so dubbed by uh, Jaron Lanier, 
And we got quite a few of these, so we might try to roll through some of them pretty quickly. But yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll stop to comment wherever we can. But. Right. And just a reminder for everybody, uh, BUMMER was Lanier's uh, acronym for what? Uh, behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for rent. Right. Um, which which, which, uh, which is nice and eloquent, but then when you get down to it, like BUMMER uh, just feels appropriate. So now I just refer to all social media as bummer just in my daily uh, conversations. I'm probably uh-huh. uh, really annoying some people in the process. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, first we heard from Hannah. Hannah writes in and says, hello, all just listen to the social media bummer episode. And I thought it would chime in as a junior in college. I took a substance abuse class and our semester long project was to give up something we were addicted to for the semester. A lot of my classmates chose coffee, soda, and one or two even chose cigarettes. I chose Facebook. When my classmates found out, many of them seemed surprised. Most of them said they could never give up Facebook, and some even admitted to being addicted to Facebook. Wow, like, oh, I'll quit cigarettes, but Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so she continues, for the first week or so, it was really hard. I found myself to be grouchy and bad-tempered, almost like I was kicking a chemical habit. I guess I kind of was in a way because social media is primed to reward our brains in a way that encourages more usage of social media. However, I found something interesting. After the the initial withdrawal, I found I was actually much happier without social media. After the semester ended, I created a new account but found that I didn't really want to use it anymore and found that it actually made me anxious and sometimes even depressed. The same is true of other social media platforms, including Instagram. I find that I am happier and less anxious and generally more productive without them. I still stay in touch with all my close friends, many of whom live out of state, and I feel that I actually feel more connected to those around me without the use of these platforms. Just thought I'd chime in with my two cents. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks for sharing, Hannah. Uh, yeah, I have to agree. When I got out of my personal accounts, uh, I I felt a lot better. I felt yeah. a lot better in so many ways. I, I still have to have work accounts for this show and others, but you know, I use them less and I don't use them for personal things. I, I just log in when I have to, basically. And uh, yeah, I, I totally identify with this experience. Yeah. And uh, for anyone who is you know, out there who's just toying with the idea, I think we've mentioned this before in previous episodes, I, I can't stress enough the value of if you're not going to delete your accounts, delete your shortcuts. Delete your apps. Yeah. Uh, because you know, I mean, one way of describing it is like, oh, it makes it harder for me to to find it. Like I have to work more to log in. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's absolutely key because you're destroying those, those sort of automatic responses, you know, where we all find like you, your fingers just kind of move on their own. It's almost like a Ouija board mm-hmm. uh, experience of suddenly you're you're in Facebook. Suddenly you're scrolling in Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you know, you're 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 feeling the the, the roller coaster of, uh, of of emotions that is going to happen. That initial surge followed by that uh, that downward trend. Yeah. Uh, well, one more thing I can say that uh, sort of came up when I was emailing back and forth with a listener who got in touch about his social media experiences. I will say that if you find yourself wanting to pull back from the most negative aspects of social media but unable to delete your accounts for some reason, maybe you need them to stay in touch or to coordinate on certain issues or you need them for work or whatever, mm-hmm. I would say that probably the best thing you can do is do everything in your power to not consume any algorithmically recommended content on these platforms. That means if you're on Facebook, don't ever scroll the feed. Just don't scroll. Mm-hmm. Don't click on anything that is recommended or suggested. Know exactly what you're going to on the site and go there. 
and right. just go to that. And the same thing applies to other sort of semi-social media platforms. Don't just scroll. Don't click recommended videos on YouTube. If you're going to watch a video on YouTube, know what you're going to watch and then go watch that and just that. Right. Uh, likewise, if you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I wonder what Jod Hodgman is uh, tweeting about. Just go go to his Twitter page. Yeah. Yeah, don't depend upon the, the, the stream, the scroll, etc. Yeah. This, don't let it decide what you see next. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. I mean, right. these platforms are designed to be very enticing with the automatic recommendation of the content you see next. Sometimes you might not even realize you're doing it, but you clicked the next video that was recommended or you started scrolling. So it can be hard to catch yourself, but to whatever extent it's it's in your power to do this, don't let it tell you what to see next. Yeah, it's a continuing struggle and it's a continuing struggle for us. So uh, yeah, we encourage you all to just hang in there. Okay, this next one is from our listener, Sarah. Sarah says, hi guys. I just listened to the Social Media's Bummer episode coming on the heel of a week-long social media cleanse. Ah. One of the main reasons I still use Facebook is to keep up to date with my roller derby team. In fact, because of deleting the app, I missed a skate park meetup uh, someone was trying to organize for extra practice. In that way, social media directly connects me to real-life social activities. At the same time, I do often find myself scrolling mindlessly, particularly in situations like the bus or other times I don't really know anyone. It keeps me from talking to new people and meeting strangers because it becomes something to turn to in moments I could just talk to the person next to me. I find it hard to balance these two opposing forces. I'm trying to be better about how long I'm on the app, but there is a fear that I won't see posts I truly do care about Uh, like a friend's major life announcement or a street festival I want to go to that a friend shares. Anyway, keep up the good work. I'm a graduate student in genetics and have incorporated your podcast into the assignments of a science and society class I'm designing. Thanks, uh, Sarah. And Sarah also taunts us for being uh, initially unable to pronounce Jaron Lanier's last name as Lanier because she points out that we are in Atlanta, which is just a little bit south of Lake Lanier. Yeah, I have to admit, I never put those two together. You know, I, I, I was reading his name over and over again, I never thought of Lake Lanier. Uh, and even after I, I started saying his name correctly, mm-hmm. I did not associate it with Lake Lanier. Uh, so one thing I will say is that this is one of the insidious things about platforms, especially Facebook, mm-hmm. that Facebook, more than all the others, I think is the problem here because it has – it, it has captured many elements of life where it's now just expected that people will be on Facebook. Well, it's and, the model of uh, of disruption, right? Yeah. Uh, instead of disrupting a particular you know market or uh, you know area of commerce, mm-hmm. it's the disruption of social interaction. Yeah, which is is even more insidious. I mean, that's I think part of their business model is they they want people to schedule events on Facebook. As, uh, and to get people to only schedule events through Facebook mm-hmm. so that you will be in exactly the situation. You'll be worried, oh, if I don't log on to Facebook, I'm going to miss things that I want to go to. Yeah, so I can see where there's def- – this is a, a great example of there's a value in it, at the very least sustaining a certain uh, you know, percentage of the population that is not on Facebook and, is, and, and, and informs people I'm not on Facebook as if, if, if nothing else to keep this from being the predominant way of communicating with each other. Yeah. You know? I mean, it already is. I've been in the same boat. I've missed stuff in real life because I got an invite on Facebook and I never logged into Facebook and never saw it. Right. Uh, I was thinking, too, about, say, more official things like like uh, like school-related stuff. Like, mm-hmm. thankfully, uh, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of different communications from my son's school, but, like, Facebook is not the primary uh, connection point. Like they're still depending on 
on emails, mm-hmm. on on text messages, and uh, and robocalls. You know, it's weird to say something nice about robocalls, but at <laughs> least it's not bummer uh-huh. uh, in this in this instance anyway. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I, I I would be far more afraid of a situation where everyone is like, oh, make sure you sign up for Facebook so you can get updates about your child. Oh man. Uh, one more thing I, I just had a quick thought about, the idea of always being able to scroll the feed when you're just otherwise idle and you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. I think there could actually be other risks to this too, not just taking you out of the moment and out of your surroundings. I think this could be establishing bad habits in the brain. I just finished reading a book by uh, by the computer scientist Cal Newport called Deep Work. It's a, it's a book uh, that sort of – it's one of the most self-helpy books I think I've actually enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But it is it was full of a lot of interesting ideas about the value of sustained attention and focus and how a lot of our, our business and uh, technological uh, world is sapping our ability to stay focused on long, deep-intensity uses of attention. And one of the things he talks about is the way that you can always just look at your phone whenever you're bored – sort of trains your brain to have extremely low tolerance for low-intensity stimulation. And so this also, he thinks, makes us worse at focusing on tasks because we have learned that whenever we're feeling like, eh, you know, less than peak stimulation, you just look at something else. Right, yeah, we're we're potentially forgetting how to be bored and how to, uh, how to roll with being bored, how to use our imaginations. Yeah. And I should say, with more and more uh, people using their phones at the urinal and in the bath, uh, public bathrooms, we're not reading the stall walls and the uh, the wall above the <laughs> right, urinal enough. Yeah. There's so much, uh, you know, Sharpie-based ingenuity that is just uh, not being appreciated anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, let's look at this next email. <laughs> and I'll also, oh. I'll also add that, that perhaps there has been a drop-off in the quality of, um, of, of, of restroom graffiti uh, since yeah. more people probably have phones than have Sharpies. Well, so. I think there's been a drop-off in quality of all literature. So <laughs> that's one of it. No, I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to be that negativity bias guy. Okay. Uh, let's look at this next email. This one comes from Kason. Wait, are, are you going to do this, Robert? Sure, I'll read okay. this one. Um, Dear Stuff to Blow Your Mind cast, I just recently listened to your social media as a bummer a podcast and wanted to share my experience. I actually just deleted my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram a little over a month ago. While I am still on Snapchat occasionally, I have seen an overall improvement in my life. I have uh, been having more meaningful conversations, connecting with others better, and focusing on life improvements. I've been working out and have seen a general increase in curiosity and desire for understanding. I have the feeling I won't be getting back on social media until I see some changes for the better within it. Keep exploring reality, Kaysen. Well, thanks, Kaysen. Uh, Do you want to go straight on to this next one from Nathan, too? You want to read this? Sure. This is from Nathan. Friends. Your show keeps me company through the challenging bouts of boredom at work. Thank you for your efforts. I felt the need to respond to your recent social media episode after listening. Depression has been a big part of my life in the past. In 2013, I took a hard look at the way Facebook affected my mood and deleted my account after saying goodbye to my friends. I had had that account for a decade, registering while in uni when Facebook was still closed to the general public and only available to students. I had watched the many ways it changed during the period— and was very unimpressed with the direction things were headed. Afterwards, I began to more carefully dissect other areas of my life to extract more fulfillment, ultimately moving across the country and setting up my life in an area I knew to be heavily community-oriented with much better weather. 
I then set about fixing the variety of things that caused the bouts of depression, and I can say I am a mostly stable person now with a much better handle on my mood and life in general. I was recently informed by my SO that you can now use Facebook Messenger without needing a Facebook account. So I have the light version of Messenger to keep in contact with friends and events. I also use Instagram and Reddit, but delete the apps off my phones every time I finish using them, which has reduced my mindless scrolling to almost zero. I engage in local community through volunteering and in-person gatherings. Life without Facebook is bliss. I encourage anyone who is able to delete their accounts to do so. It has literally turned my life around. Nathan. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for getting in touch, Nathan. That that really hits home. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, let's take a look at this next one that is a response, uh, just a short response to our episode on the bones of the plumed serpent, our geomythology episode about Quetzalcoatl. Uh, this is from their, our listener, Bridget. Bridget says, I enjoyed the show overall, but I really emailed to respond to your Godzilla comments near the end of the episode. I love the Japanese Godzilla movies. I went over two hours out of my way to see Shin Godzilla in the theater. <laughs> that's, that's dedication. That's really good. Uh, I also agree that the bureaucracy going on in the movie added to it. This isn't to say I didn't enjoy Big G rampaging through the city. I hope Toho does a sequel. Also, if you're fans of the radioactive dino, there is a great book called The Godzilla Fact. Sorry, I did not underline I'm on my phone. That's okay, Bridget. Uh, it has a lot of history about Big G, Toho, actors, directors, producers, special effects, and so on. Awesome, yeah. Uh, uh, Shin Godzilla, we've, we've mentioned before, uh, mm. a recent Japanese... Godzilla movie that is just enthralling. Uh, so much of it is bureaucratic response to what is going on. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, the thing that it uh, that I've seen recently that it reminded me the most of is uh, the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. Oh, yeah. Now, granted, okay. there are you know a lot of lineups here. You know, especially radiation. Uh, radiation does play into the sort of the origin of of Godzilla as a as a fictional um, you know contemplation, mm -hmm. but. Uh, but yeah, you know, both both films have a lot of like meetings about what is happening and are and are, and are very enthralling. I give a slightly higher rating to Chernobyl uh, for uh, for a few different reasons, but uh, but yeah, Shin Godzilla is terrific. All right, now we already did a whole listener mail episode that was just responses to our five part series on psychedelics with the special focus on psilocybin. And uh, we, a lot of people got in touch with their thoughts and experiences after that one. We got some other really good uh, mail on that, so I, I didn't think we could ignore it. So I think we will take a look at a few more emails that came in about the psychedelic series. Right. So, uh, yeah, so the, the next few emails are, are definitely going to deal with uh, psychedelic substances. So uh, just bear that in mind. Yeah. Uh, should I do this first one from Zarek here? Hit us with the Zarek email. Okay. This is from Zarek. Zarek says, hey, guys. This was a really wonderful series on psychedelics. I really loved it, and I hope you have the chance to dedicate more future episodes to some more specific topics in the area, though at least a short break is probably in order. <laughs> uh, it might be a while before we come back to it in any deep way. But, yeah, I, but yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I'll resist the urge to make 9,000 comments and suggestions, but one thing that's particularly interesting to me is the relationship between classical psychedelics and serotonergic antidepressants such as SSRIs, SNRIs, etc. Without boring you with too much neurobiology, psychedelics seem to induce the changes that antidepressants induce over weeks or months in just one experience or day. 
Rather than serotonin being the happiness chemical, it would seem that these drugs' antidepressant effects are more about decreasing it than increasing it. Though, as you rightly pointed out, serotonin does a ton of diverse things at different receptors, in different parts of the brain, and in different contexts. Either it's a long-term elevation with an SSRI that causes down-regulation of the excessive serotonin signaling, or a one-time massive stimulation with the classical psychedelics that does it. But the result is apparently similar. What remains unclear and intriguing to me is exactly what the relationship between those mood effects and the sensory gating effects that make psychedelics so unique and interesting is. Some think that what they have in common is just the idea that it's a kind of global reboot of the brain slash mind, though I think the answer is probably a lot more interesting than that. Here's one idea for a related topic. What would a world with normalized psychedelic use actually look like? Pollen talks about this a little, but I wish he'd explored it a bit more. Should we take the medical route, the spiritual and or religious route, a totally secular legalization, as in a free-for-all, or something else? Maybe they're not mutually exclusive. My instinct is that it would be better if psychedelics were not bound to medical, religious, or capitalistic institutions, but I don't really know what that would look like. I also think it's very important that they be introduced and used in safe, educated, enlightening contexts. Though I don't have a ton of confidence in our society's ability to do this kind of thing, are there any precedents? What should the age limit be uh, compared to Pollen's idea about psychedelics being wasted on the young? Keep doing what you're doing. I'm only 24, but I've been listening to the show for something like 10 years, and it's been a rewarding and consistent part of my life. I'm a graduate student in neuroscience currently, and I definitely give the show credit for inspiring and motivating me to this point, and some psychedelics as well. Best, Zarek. Well, thanks so much, Zarek. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm is... always delighted to hear, especially from, from long-term listeners like that. Yeah, uh, really, really nice to hear that uh, we may have helped inspire you to go into the sciences. Yeah. Now, uh, the, the part I... I, uh, you know, re react to the most here, of course, is just that that question: What would normalized psychedelic use actually look like? Yeah, um, and and I do agree with the with his read that it, it would be better if uh, corporations, um, you know, uh, large religious organizations, uh, and, uh, and the medical industry didn't have uh, you know a, a complete stranglehold on these substances. Yeah, but it is difficult to imagine you know, what it would look like. I mean, really, I think the the, the the models you have to compare it to are the more uh, you know traditional societies such as you know Amazonian cultures etc or more or ancient societies that we often don't have a completely clear picture of how uh, how or what specific psychedelics were involved in their their daily life yeah I mean it does make me think about how e even though as we discussed in the episode, from a physiological point of view, psychedelics are relatively very safe compared to most other recreational drugs that mm -hmm. people take. And not to say that there are no risks, but like compared to, uh, you know, cocaine and stimulants and uh, opioids and all that kind of stuff, the, the risks are very low. But I don't – at the same time, I don't think that means that there couldn't be really damaging, unhealthy uh, systems of use for them. Uh, I, I just wonder what if, if there was like a – an industry controlling psychedelics the same way that there's an industry controlling tobacco or alcohol somehow that I don't I don't know I, it's something about that seems like it could go to a very bad place I don't know exactly how right yeah I mean we've 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 seen what what happens when say somebody like say the, the CIA mm -hmm. tries to use a psychedelic for their own purposes mm -hmm. 
uh, and it's and like that's not a, a an enlightened vision of of the future. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think that you know ultimately it, it's not something that uh, that really uh, showed a lot of promise for mind control uh, uh, in the long run. So you didn't see programs like MK Ultra continue, right? But um, but yeah, you would hate to see it, uh, you know, controlled by a corporation. Uh, you would hate to see it controlled by like a you know a, a religious um, organization that was using it for more nefarious purposes, or ultimately trying to use it for the same thing that that MK Ultra was interested in, uh, the uh-huh. MK Ultra project interested in controlling people through them. Uh, you know, it should be used for personal liberation. Uh, you know, I, I believe that is the, the the stronger, more pervasive argument made by, uh, you know, people th- throughout the decades and most recently uh, in, in Michael Pollan's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's a very, this is a very imperfect analogy, but I think to something like, like yoga, for instance, mm-hmm. like a yoga practice uh, can be very good for one's body and state of mind. You can also injure yourself through it. Sure. Uh, if if a teacher doesn't know what they're doing, they could potentially help you injure yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, you can make comparisons, though, to more like thoroughly regulated practices uh, such as medicine. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of uncharted territory because the the prime the more primal uh, examples that we can look to in the past, you had you it was the domain of the shaman, mm-hmm. and the shaman kind of fulfilled you know multiple roles. In uh, in a particular society, though above all, they were a healer, right? And and in Western uh, society, and like most of our our healer uh, roles are are rather tightly um, uh, controlled. You know, it's mm-hmm. certainly medical healing, uh, uh, some some of the more uh, you know various other therapeutic practices as well. So you, you, it's one of these things where we would have to sort of create a new. Um, a new class of, of, of healer in our society. You would really have to bring back some form of shamanism. But then who controls the shamans, right? Uh, it, it, are they a part of some, uh, you know, larger religious institution? Or are they, are they corporate in nature? We get back to these same problems again. Yeah, whether it's religious organizations, corporations, and, and business or governments. I mean, the world is full of institutions that are inherently interested in promoting their own power and control. Right. And... Uh, and, and yeah, it seems like all kinds of, you know, cultural practices or substances are seized one way or another by one of these institutions primarily. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is hard to imagine. I think this is a really tough question. I, I don't know if if we have a good answer for it. Well, uh, you know, one thing that Pollan gets into in, in the book is he, he talks about going out and finding a, a essentially a shaman, essentially a mm-hmm. psychedelic guide to uh, to take him on uh, this experience. Mm-hmm. And he talked a little about how, you know, s- some of the the people he he scouted, uh, you know, it was it was a, a an easy pass. Yeah. You know, he was like <laughs> I just I don't this is not the right person. Uh, but other people he was very impressed with. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the, I guess that's part of it is like even if it's completely, you know, unregulated in the way that it's going to be it is currently, you know, largely unregulated and since it is, you know, completely uh, you know, underground, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have, uh, it's, you know, it's just going to be the market of, of of shamans. Maybe it's a review based or it's just word of mouth. I don't know. 
Uh, but, uh, but, but I guess that's a section of the book where he does get into the question a little bit. So anyway, yeah, kind of rambling there, but especially since I have no answer. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the short answer though is, uh, it's an open question. All right. Uh, I guess we need to take a break, but when we come back, we'll do a few more of these, uh, psychedelic listener mails and then go on to a few other topics. All right, we're back. Uh, so here's a short one in response to our psychedelics episode. This is from our listener, Tatiana. Tatiana says, hey, guys, short time binge listener. Love the show. Especially enjoyed the five part series on psychedelics. Do you guys have any plans to delve deeper into talking about the self? I know you guys referenced Alan Watts in the psychedelic series once or twice. Uh, maybe you've already done an episode on him. But like I said, short time listener. Uh, I don't think we have. No, never. He comes up from time to time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because he, he, he had something to say about a lot of these, a lot of the issues that we talk about on the show, uh-huh. uh, but but never like a real like Alan Watts themed episode. He would be interesting to cover. Yeah, he's uh, kind of like Terrence McKenna. He's one of those people who's uh, a very captivating public speaker, I find. Yeah. Like, listening to his talks is just kind of magical. Yeah, he's he's definitely an individual who I've, I've heard more than I've, I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I, and I still smile whenever I, I hear a sample from Alan Watts pop up in a, a mix or an electronic track or even occasionally yeah. like an industrial track. I bet he is, his lectures are one of the most highly sampled of any. Yeah, I would, I would, I would bet so. It's like him and Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, but his, his voice is very musical and very whimsical but wise. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it's great. He sounds like a wizard. Uh, but anyway, so uh, she continues, I think his book, The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are, would be an excellent follow-up to the series and mailbag. Uh, the book eloquently sums up those ineffable experiences on psychedelics into a cohesive theory about the nature of reality and existence, at least to me. I firmly believe so. So many people could benefit from understanding Watt's worldview, and I'm tired of sounding like a hippie to people when I try to explain it. Please, you guys have much better words than I. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, – oh, she also says – she subscribed to Invention. Good work, Tatiana. Everybody <laughs> should follow your lead and subscribe to Invention. Yeah, I would love to do an episode on Watts in the future. And uh, and I've, I've given up trying to not sound like a hippie. I think that's probably just uh, what it's going to be like for the duration. All right, you want to do this next email? This one, I know this one got your, uh, oh, yeah, got yeah. your antennae poked up. Uh, this one comes to us from uh, the home dad abroad. Uh, that is how uh, this listener identifies themselves. Hey, those of the blown mind. <laughs> Although I am painfully aware that none of my emails have elected enough interest to make it on a listener mail episode, it is still my hope that they were read and may have sparked some type of response around the office. Uh, Regardless of the past, I do have a question that I would love to have addressed through a means uh, which would expose others to the possibility, extending out from a previous and controversial set of episodes delving into the bicameral mind. You yourselves have occasionally brought up the idea of the bicameral mind hypothesis when discussing many other topics. However, it has largely been in jest or at least in a light-hearted manner. Um, I would say that it's sometimes come up in a light-hearted or jestful manner in, in other episodes. But mm-hmm. I think when we – I would argue that when we discussed them originally, you know, we – we gave it a lot of serious consideration. Yeah. Uh, I mean I would say it's still one of those things that – I'm not convinced by the idea. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it asks you to accept a lot, though I think he makes a really interesting case. So it's one of those that I'm not convinced by, but I take seriously and remain interested in and would always be open to evidence for, though I'm not super hopeful that evidence for it will ever show up. Right. 
Your recent episode on psychedelics and the following feedback episode often referred to experiences on psychedelics encompassing, in some case, a sense of ego loss, and in other cases, uh, as having encounters with God. In many of your, um, your and other criticisms of Julian Jaynes' ideas, there has been the claim that even uh, if his ideas are correct, there is no way to test for an older form of mental structure in which the subconscious mind speaks to the conscious mind as a disconnected being since we are not built that way. And yet, here exist substances which allow one to view themselves from without, substances that seem capable of freeing God from the confines of our deep unconscious selves uh, for us to examine and even question. Addi- additionally, as we know, ego loss is the separation from the sense of self which defines our own conscious awareness of who we are. In James's book and other works, he relates the idea of the God voice coming from within and describes humans as experiencing the world from a surface perspective, with longer-term planning coming from that personal God voice or the God voice of a stronger personality like that of a leader priest. To spell it out from a quick surface vantage point, there would seem to be distinct similarities between the effects of psychedelics and the hypothesized functioning of the bicameral mind. To further argue this relationship, psychedelic experiences don't seem to be burdened by language, but instead by imagery and visualizations that are open to interpretation. This is much like the non-linguistic side of the brain, which is still capable of communication even with a severed corpus callosum only through visual means. Anyway, there is a question in there somewhere, the home dad abroad. Well, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I don't know if I'm fully following all the way, but but I see some of the connections you're making there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, who we discussed in the Psychedelics episodes a bit, uh, you know, he actually references Jane's work a few times, mm-hmm. once in Food of the Gods, but also in some of his other writings and talks that I've been looking at. Um, but in a nutshell, McKenna thought that the concept was very interesting. I mean, Jane's and McKenna both were contemplating the same thing, right? The emergence of the modern mind from its more primal predecessor. And as we've discussed, this is a shift that that did occur over the course of our evolution. I mean, the details of it and the, you know, the exact uh, mechanism of it are, 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 are what we're so, so many people are trying to figure out. But I mean, certainly the consciousness, the state of mind that we have today is not the state of mind that our, you know, our, our more ancient ancestors had, at least. And you can get into uh, discussions about where the the change occurs, how right. gradual the change is. But certainly, uh, I think we can we can state, uh, you know, unequivocally that uh, that the way that we think now is not the way that um, our, our pre-human ancestors thought. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that McKenna and Jane's both have in common is that they posit a sort of point of shift with yeah. with a with a cause that can be identified through which modern consciousness in humans came into play, as opposed to a lot of other people would probably assume that the way the human mind is now is something that sort of gradually and continuously evolved over time. There wasn't like a point of shift where something changed in a really important way. Right. But even in a more gradual scenario, you do end up like contemplating like, well, okay, is is everybody at the same rate in this race towards modern consciousness? Or is it uh, you're going to have a situation where some people are are more, uh, you know, modernly conscious than others? Yeah, it is weird. I mean, it's hard to imagine. You, you assume, I don't know. I mean, is there even a way to measure levels of consciousness that seems mm-hmm. seems hard to do? Yeah. So, um, 
so yeah, McKenna does bring up uh, Jane's work in, in some of his own writings. McKenna's main criticism, though, was that Jane's rarely considered hallucinatory substances in his hypothesis. Okay. Um, you know, it comes up a, a time or two in Jane's uh, key work, uh, but really almost in passing. And, you know, granted, Jane's tend to, tended to focus on the areas and languages of, of, of his own expertise mm-hmm. and was rather upfront about that, like, you know, pointing out that he did not speak Mandarin so he, or read Mandarin, so he did not explore Chinese culture for examples of, uh, of the bicameral mind. Right. Um, and McKenna was, of course, laser-focused on the, on the role of psychedelics and their role in the past, the present, and the future of our species. So he seems to have admired a lot about bicameralism, but felt that, you know, that, that this was a glaring hole in the overall work. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with McKenna on, on that, you know? I mean, to... Well, I mean, he, yeah, he's naturally got a very hallucinogen-centric view. Right. Yeah. And, and, I mean, there's a strong case to be made for the use of uh, these substances in various uh, ancient societies. And if you're trying to form a, a model of, uh, you know, like Jane's model... Uh, it does seem you, that you should incorporate hallucinogens in there in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I guess the other way you could look at it is if someone, some enterprising person out there wanted to, uh, you know, create a combined theory of uh, <laughs> like M- McKinnon bicameralism, um, you know, that would that would be interesting. I'd probably read that if you put it in essay form. Now, I do think the email or two in approximation basically identified my, you know, main issue with with the bicameral mind hypothesis and would also somewhat apply to the McKenna hypothesis is that to whatever extent the case they present already lines up with known evidence, it's one of those things that I won't I'm not going to say it's impossible mm-hmm. to have, you know, better evidence. I, I, people use the word prove. I don't, I don't know if prove is ever a very useful word in right. like historical scientific theories because uh, you're not dealing with like a mathematical proof. But if you're just talking about like presenting, you know, really conclusive evidence for some kind of historical hypothesis, then that is sometimes done in, you know, physical historical sciences like paleontology and stuff. Uh, I I won't say it's impossible, but I will say I imagine it's going to be very hard, even if one of these theories happens to be correct, to find the evidence that would show that it was correct. You You can kind of like tinker around at the margins, you know, and say like, Oh, here's something that would kind of fit with what uh, with what Jane's or what McKenna were saying. But unfortunately, as like fun and interesting as these theories can be, I think there's it's very likely there's just always going to be that evidence gap there. Like, yeah. it, how do you go farther with it? Now, one key difference between McKenna and uh, and Jane's is, of course, that that Jane's was primarily interested in the past. Yeah. Uh, but but McKenna was also extremely interested in the future. Mm-hmm. So I think the like the other side of of McKenna's writings. Uh, you know, concern the question of where are we going mm-hmm. uh, from here and how could psychedelic substances play a role? Uh, how, how may they have not only played a role in the evolution of consciousness, how could they play a role in the necessary continued evolution of consciousness? Could they reach, get, help us reach a place that we need to uh, achieve in order to avoid uh, the um, essentially the, you know the catastrophes of the modern age, yeah, and and ultimately even like leave the planet and become a, a planetary species, uh, something that he says he argues is is incompatible with our current state of consciousness. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, he, he had a lot of interesting metaphors oh, about yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Like he, I remember one talk of his I listened to where he talked about the uh, the brain being a computer that's running an operating system and that mm -hmm. operating system is culture mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, that psychedelics are like a way of wiping the hard drive, like erasing the operating system and getting back to the deeper level of the machine. Yeah. Which obviously was the thing that he was like advocating Metaphors like that can be really compelling, but they also show that McKenna was not just concerned, yeah, like you're saying, like Jane's with coming up with a theory that explains some mysteries about the past and about the human mind, but was he was an advocate for a worldview. He was yeah. like, human, humanity should be more like this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Though it does make, it brings me back to our previous email talking about who, who will be the masters of the psychedelic substances. If you're making an argument that, um, that, that a psychedelic uh, evolution is necessary for interplanetary travel um, and interplanetary culture. Uh, I mean, interplanetary travel is a mega project, uh, mm -hmm. generally best left to major uh, institutions that can control people or at least, uh, you know, can control massive projects. Uh, so if you're going with that argument, maybe uh, the psychedelics uh, should be in, in, uh, in control of... Uh, of the uh, like a, a you know corporate or <laughs> or governmental shamans. I don't mm. know. I don't particularly like that uh, uh, that idea. But uh, if you're if you're lumping um, uh, you know psychedelics and space travel together, uh, it sounds like that's where you would place the trust. All right. Next, I think we're going to look at a couple of messages from our episode about surviving a great fall. This is an episode where we talked about stories of people surviving falling from extremely great heights, such as out of an airplane, and like what do these stories tend to have in common? Uh, so the first one is in response to what we mentioned about how being bigger is worse when you're falling, even though it increases your surface area, which should increase your drag through the air. Why does gravity win out over drag as you get bigger? Like how come – I think it was Haldane who said, you know, the mouse will survive a fall down a mine shaft, but a horse will splat, <laughs> uh, will splash or something. This is from our listener Jeremy. Jeremy says, hi, Robert and Joe. Big fan of the show. Just a quick comment on the episode about surviving a fall – the reason why if you're bigger, gravity wins over air resistance is because mass goes up on the cube, but surface area only goes up on the square. Kind regards, Jeremy. Short to the point, and I, I think that's correct. I think that's a similar problem you encounter when you imagine organisms getting bigger and bigger and having more of a problem dissipating heat from their bodies, right? Because as they grow, as they get up, their, their, their mass goes up in a cubic way, which means they're going to have more and more heat issues inside the body. But the surface area on which to dissipate that heat only goes up uh, on a square. All right, this one comes to us from Phil. Greetings, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to your episode on how to survive a great fall. It reminded me of the 2009 TV remake of Day of the Triffids. <laughs> Towards the beginning of the film, a massive solar eruption renders everyone on a particular flight blind, including the pilots, save for one man played by Eddie Izzard who happens to be napping at the time. As the plane goes down, Izzard takes this opportunity to grab as many flotation devices as possible and pad himself within the airplane bathroom. The plane crashes and Izzard finds himself to be the sole survivor. Based on what I learned in the podcast uh, from anecdotal evidence, this seems like it could be a viable option for survival, albeit a dick move. <laughs> Just wanted to share this tidbit as I believe I've heard you guys mention both Izzard and Day of the Triffids in the past, and it seems to tie in neatly with the episode. Hope you both found this interesting. Keep up the great work, Phil. I have to admit, I have, I've never read nor seen any of the adaptations of Day of the Triffids, but I know that I should. I know that this is uh, 
this is a keyhole in my like my sci-fi a keyhole uh, a keyhole well and that, that is it is a yeah. it is a it is a notable hole in my viewing history but also a pot- potentially a way that I might unlock new thoughts and ideas if I were just to finally view it good save there okay <laughs> uh this next one comes from our listener Josh this is also about falling out of an airplane Robert and Joe just finished listening to your episode on how to survive a great fall. As always, it was fantastic. Love all your work, and your podcast is what got me started on podcasts in general. I'm writing today about a personal connection to the idea of landing on snow safely. In the 1950s, my grandfather was in the Army and based out of Alaska. His unit was on ski patrol across Alaska watching for Russian activity. The belief of his commanders at the time was that if the Russians were to attack Alaska, they could have troops jump out of a plane at low altitude with no parachute and land on the snowpack fairly safely. They estimated any such Russian unit would be 50% combat effective after no parachute after a no parachute jump onto a snowpack. I suppose what they would give up in casualties they would gain in the surprise advantage of not having big targets hanging in the air. I wish I could provide more details, but my grandfather is long past and I just remember the story he told us when we were young. Thanks for all you do, Josh. I was looking for evidence of this. I, I couldn't find anything to back up the idea that the Russians would actually intentionally jump out of planes without parachutes, but I did find other references on the internet to this rumor as like being shared by members of the American Armed Forces. Huh. Uh, so I, it does look to me like at least some American you know, uh, military leaders thought this. Well, you could imagine it being, you know, something that would be factored into the Cold War competition of mm-hmm. just saying like, okay, here's something that is feasible. Maybe they are doing it. Or, right. I mean, it could also be something where the Russians, uh, where either side really could have, oh, right. could have just put it out there as a, as a bit of false information. Uh, we discussed this <laughs> this before. It's like the Russians have psychic assassins. Well, we need psychic assassins. Yes. Actually, nobody had psychic assassins, <laughs> but it's just like a, one of those uh, pointless excitations of the other side's uh, FOMO about certain war powers. Right. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should be throwing people out of airplanes into snowbanks. Uh, you know, if the enemy's doing it, then we need to look into it as well. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Cindy. Hi, Robert and Joe. This is the third time I have written. I know you guys get tons of emails, so you can't write back. So I'm going to trust it when you say that you still read all of them. <laughs> you may already be aware of this book or even own it already, but if not, I highly recommend it. It is quite simply awesome, and it is well written as well, I believe. It would be up at least one of your alleys. I think it would be up both of our alleys. Uh, the book is titled Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix. And uh, I have not picked up a copy of this yet, but it is a subtitle, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction. And it seems to be to revolve uh, entirely around like the amazing, often skull-based artwork that you find on these <laughs> old paperbacks. Uh-huh. Paperbacks that just that, that enraptured me when I was a child, and still, whenever I encounter them, either in a used bookstore, uh, on a like, a, or if I'm on Amazon, just looking around at old books, or if I am at a beach house mm-hmm. and I find uh, one of these squirreled away, I instantly geek out. So. This does look amazing. All right. Uh, we got a couple of emails about our episode on the electric microbe land. This first one was from Jamie. It includes a photo. I'm sorry that you out there can't see it, but we'll try to describe it. Jamie says, hey, guys, just listen to your episode on the electric microbe land and heard you talking about uh, the garden gnome with light-up eyes. Now, this was something I think we – didn't talk about having seen, we just proposed, right? Yeah, that it must exist. Okay. <laughs> Jamie's got the inside scoop. Jamie says, 
My sister-in-law has a fear of garden gnomes. So one day when I was in a local grocery store and happened upon this electric garden gnome, I had to take a photo to share with her, and now I can share it with you, too. Imagine looking out into your garden to see these glowing eyes staring back at you. Thanks for another show, Jamie. And Jamie attaches a photo that is a regular sort of, uh, I don't know, stone-colored garden gnome with the beard and the the cute little stubby fingers, except has these nightmare welding goggle eyes <laughs> with, with I don't, the... It's got the look inside of like the highly reflective backing with the powerful LED bulb. I, I don't know. It looks like it would shine through your soul. Yeah, it looks like they look like the deadlights. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they look like. Um, it is a, a horrifying gnome if I've ever seen one. But I'm glad that Jamie sent it in. You want to do this next one from Keegan? Should we close out here? Sure, let's do it. Hi, Robert and Joe. I've been listening to your podcast for a bit more than a year and a half now, occupying my time at a variety of jobs between parking rental cars and working on governmental contracts. I love listening to your insights on into all the, all the different topics and thought experiments you cover, but one that I particularly love is when Robert gets into Dungeons & Dragons creatures and either their feasibility in the real world creatures that may have inspired them, or just how, ooh, this topic could make a great dungeon creature adventure. I'm curious, Robert, have you uh, ever thought about doing a more D&D-related episode or possibly starting up a personal podcast delving into such things, possibly a Facebook group that homebrews uh, based on your episodes? Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is a hobby close to my heart, and and bringing real-world inspirations into it or getting into interesting real-world topics because of it makes me just giddy. Your most recent episode, Electric Microbe Land, is already giving me a few ideas for an ooze that can shoot out wires to either drain its enemies or pump them full of electricity and use this ability to heal its neighbors. Regardless of whether you decide to make something separate or interject a reference every uh, once in a while, thanks for bringing a favorite hobby of mine into such an amazing podcast, Robert, and thank you for asking so many questions when it comes up, Joe. Keep on rolling strong, Keegan. Oh, well, thanks, Keegan. Um, yeah, I mean, I love talking about, uh, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons uh, mythos. Uh, so, you know, to whatever extent we can incorporate more uh, entries from the Monster Manual in the future, I would uh, I would love that. Uh, we have talked about potentially doing an episode on, like, Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing and sort of the psychology of it. I've kind of done a little uh, uh, nosing around for, for potential sources on that. Uh, but uh, I I can say you know w- without a shadow of uh, of doubt that w- that more monsters will come up on the show in the future. I'm not sure which ones, but uh, there are just so many great monsters in the in the uh, in the monster manual. No doubt, I keep getting envious. Th- this has got to be like the saddest nerdiest statement anybody's ever made. But it's that I've always wanted to play D and D. Yeah, I mean it's it it can be hard to find uh, you know the right opportunity to. I went for like, what, uh, 20 years or more without playing? Probably more, probably like 25 years Mm -hmm. between playing it in, uh, like, junior high and then playing it again as an adult. So uh, it's, but it's, it's still there. It's, it's thriving. It's, uh, and, uh, you know, you can, it's more, it's more publicly accessible and uh, and acceptable these days, I, I feel. I've been around people playing it, and I may have mentioned this on the show before, but something that always struck me about it is that, maybe more so than any other activity I'd ever witnessed. It seemed like a thing that could be magical if you have the right group, but that one person can easily completely ruin it. Yeah, I mean, it is a social... My my, my philosophy on it anyway is that it is a social communal exercise. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, and as such, yeah, everybody has to be kind of on the same wavelength. Everyone has to, you know, you've got to have the, the group has to have a certain vibe for it to work. So I've talked to people who are like, yeah, I tried it and I felt like the, the DM was a bit tyrannical mm-hmm. or, you know, some people were taking it serious and some people were goofy about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, that's, that is one of the challenges. You got to find the right group. You got to find a, a, you know, a group that you fit in with. Uh, either in the you know in in real life in a physical gaming setting, or even uh, if you're doing something remote, uh, which a lot of people do these days. All right, we have one last email, and it brings us back, as all things should, to the sacred mountain. Right. Let's go up that slope. This is from Kyle. Kyle says, "Hi guys, I'm still at work, but couldn't resist your call to mountaineers, as I have a personal story to share related to your Sacred Mountain episode, so I'll make this a quick one. I hiked to Everest Base Camp in 2015 and had a very strange experience the night before we arrived at base camp over 5,000 meters or 17,000 feet. I woke in the middle of the night and completely believed time was running backwards, a feeling that is difficult to describe, though it involved a panicked sensation as though I would lose my progress by having to rewind my previous grueling day of hiking, possibly backwards, and a feeling of total helplessness. Hmm. I remember walking back and forth, practicing walking, checking that time was indeed working. I think I convinced myself time was okay when I saw somebody else walking perfectly normally, not backwards to the toilet, not what I would call a toilet. (laughs) I think the strange experience lasted about 5 to 10 minutes, or uh, he suggests maybe minus 10 minutes, so not exactly quick. The next day I was fine, relatively, as I was already suffering minor headaches from that altitude. I asked around in the morning, and most of the experienced hikers and locals thought it was a weird one too. A Sherpa recommended that I eat lots of garlic, and from memory, I think this affects dilation of blood capillaries, uh, definitely required fact-checking. It seemed to help anyway, as I did not experience any more hallucinations over the next week or so on the way down. Side note, just imagine the smell of a 19-year-old guy who has not showered properly in two weeks, heavily eating garlic with daily strenuous activity. (laughs) I was almost proud. I was 19 years old at the time, traveling with some friends from the Raise and Give Society uh, from the University of Leeds, UK, with no mental illness and was relatively fit. To date, I have not experienced any similar reality-bending episode, and in the end it had caused me no harm, though I confess I am tempted to sometimes double-check the bedside clock if I stir in the night. I've never emailed you guys before, though you have accompanied me in my headphones for many years now, I believe even perhaps on my Himalayan hike before my phone died. And writing in has been on my perpetual to-do list, so I'd like to say thank you uh, to the whole team. I recommend you and your other podcasts whenever in conversation, uh, and I drop a fact, theory, explanation for our weird universe that you guys have armed me with. All the best, Kyle. Oh, well, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, the, 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 the last part, the, the trials in the mountains, informative to hear, uh, but, uh, but I can see that that was, uh, that was an ordeal. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was part of what we were talking about. It was mm-hmm. like th- this question about the effects of altitude on possible hallucinations, especially in people who didn't experience hallucinations in other contexts. Yeah, that's interesting. And then also like the, the I, I assume the effects of like all that, um, that hiking and climbing mm-hmm. on the mental state, you know, it reminds me of, um, you know, we, we've discussed dreams again recently, but when you, when I've been uh, in, in the water on a boat or in the surf, and then uh, you have that sensation of remaining in it, and it kind of affects your 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 mental state and even your dreams. Uh-huh. Uh, I wonder if that's uh, playing a role here too. This idea of of marching forward 
and that being a, a rate of passage through time. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting, uh, interesting bit of listener mail there. Yeah. And there's still more. That's the sad part. We, we were Ugh. not able to get to all of it. There's an excellent uh, Fatberg listener mail. We're just going to have to hold till next time. Uh, but let's, let's try not, for, not to forget that. Yeah. Right. But we're going to put it, we're going to put it away in the Fatberg <laughs> cooler and we'll return to it. In the meantime, uh, hey, everybody, there, there are plenty of other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind over at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And uh, if you want to look up Invention, that's at InventionPod.com. Those are the, uh, I guess you could say the twin motherships that you can check out. Those are the O&O websites uh, for our show. But, of course, you can find our shows just about anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. And we, we ask that wherever you do get them, if there's a way to rate, review, and subscribe to our shows, uh, just do that. That's a great way uh, to have help us. And, of course, just tell folks about it, uh, about these shows in the real world. That also helps big time. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to maybe have your mail uh, featured on a future listener mail episode, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.